Uh, welcome to this night's live recording of the Beirut Banyan with your host, Rani Shatah. Oh, you can clap. You. Yes, you can clap. Oh. <laughs> then let's keep the round of applause going to Wael. He's an audio expert. Thank you. A suspender expert and someone who's leaving the country. So it's a big mistake. <laughs> Boo, exactly. Boo to that. <laughs> I think that was uh, my wife's uncle right there. <laughs> and let's extend the round of applause to Mia Atwe as well. Thank you, Ronnie. This is the third live episode. And I think the date is quite important. We discovered last week, by the way, can everyone hear me? Yes. Yeah? Great. We discovered last week, it's International Women's Day today, and we'll be discussing not just that, we'll be discussing men's health on International Women's Day, which is quite nice. Um, I know Mia from two worlds, from her diligent work and embrace, and also from a New Year's Eve party some six years ago, which I may have needed to call Embrace after that <laughs> night. <laughs> Two couples, New Year's Eve, we got to know each other. I'm a big fan of your work, and I think all of us are. Uh, it's a sensitive subject. I think this will be a slightly more emotional conversation. Uh, I won't do too much talking. I will say that you're the president of Embrace, a co-founder, clinical psychologist. You're an expert in this domain. And I hope I got the year right. Embrace began in 2013. Yes, correct. Attached to AUB. Yes. <laughs> and now, nine years later, ten years later. Almost. Almost a decade. It's almost our anniversary in a, in a few months. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. By the way, I should always remind the guests, if you want to order, there's going to be a break after the episode ends, and there will be a Q&A after the break as well. So in case you're still hungry or want to drink, there's a break. Mia, let me start with maybe the heaviest of subjects. Before we get into men's health awareness and the campaign you're working on, in my mind, this is a superficial assessment. I'm going to just imagine, since Embrace began in AUB, and where you are right now, every issue that you're tackling, every subject that you're confronting regarding mental health and mental health awareness has been exacerbated. Yeah. And I'm just speculating that the number of phone calls Embrace gets, the lifeline number, this increases over time. Uh, pressure on individuals, societal pressure sometimes, may not always go down. It could go up. And I think your role is fundamental as the country is experiencing a crippling, paralyzing chapter. And I just want some perspective. Um, do you find your work more critical right now than when you started? Do you see perhaps that this is the role that you wanted to be in and whether or not this is exhausting for you? <laughs> because I never really get the chance to ask you how you're doing yeah. <laughs> as the president of Embrace. And you, you hear many stories. You meet many people. From my side, I meet people that want to express themselves to you. I can't imagine being you. Mm. So... That's a huge way of starting. Maybe some reflection on the last decade, where Embrace was, where Embrace is, and yourself. 
Uh, actually, it's a good way to start, and it's uh, good that uh, Noor, uh, just before this episode, like an hour ago, shared with me uh, a version of our annual uh, report for 2022, where I had actually been reflecting on uh, on the past year. Mm. And uh, I did say, and and what I wrote, which you will all read soon, <laughs> I guess, that it was a year of a lot of growing pains mm. for us as an organization um, for many reasons, I think, because I think 2022 was the first year for us that we are beginning to start to reflect on the traumas and adversities of 2019, 2020, and 2021. I, do, I don't think in the last three years we have ever stopped to think about what has uh, happened to us. Mm. And it was until I had to write this, you know, reflection for the year, uh, for our report, that I noticed that, you know, we, we've been on a roller coaster for the past three years. And we, even us, who are, you know, running uh, such an organization and working with people, we, we, we don't stop. Yeah. And this year was very hard for us internally for the first time. Uh, because the team had grown very much in this year and we ourselves started to really get uh, burdened by yeah. everything we are doing. So uh, if this is happening within an organization which is dedicated to mental health and whose mission is really to cater to thousands of people, our, the hotline that we run today with the Ministry of uh, Health, the National Suicide Hotline, it's its fifth year uh, operating in Lebanon. And uh, I, this year we also reached one of our peak number of calls, which was uh, 1,600 calls in a, f a few months ago in June. So In one month. In one month, which was the highest number we've reached in the last five years. Uh, so all of this, really, it needs some time to reflect and to process. And no, when we started 10 years ago, uh, Lebanon was much different. Uh, what we anticipated our mission would be also was quite different. We, we did not anticipate that we will be uh, plummeting into this economic crisis. Yeah. And we did not anticipate that we would uh, experience the <laughs> third largest explosion. Yeah. And we did not anticipate that we would be losing our city and we would be sitting here somewhere where um, I cannot but pass through the street and sit right now here and, you know, get flashbacks of how it was two years ago. Um, so, no, we, were, we weren't ready for all of this, but we're, uh, we seem, we're trying to take it day by day. In the last decade, I think anyone that's been in this sector, whether it's an NGO, uh, NGO cause, or whether it's civil society at large, I think they, they've seen such a severe downward spiral that their role today is so critical. And without a group like Embrace, you'd have many people without an empathetic listener on the other side. It's startling that 1,600 people are calling in one month. Yeah. This is, I mean, I, I, don't, I know it's not about you. I know it's not a personal issue, but I'm curious what took you to this world to begin with. And the reason I want to know is because I studied psychology myself. I, did it, I had a degree in psychology. Although I podcast <laughs> and I do other things, I write. Um, what took you to that world? Was it that you saw 
things here that needed to be addressed by our generation. Because my mind, growing up here, wanting to study psychology, it was a joke. I actually left Lebanon to study psychology abroad. Yeah. And even, even the thought of being a psychologist one day, not taken seriously. For sure. But abroad, you could. Yeah. And you could pursue it, and you could become a clinical psychologist, and people would actually mm. take it very seriously. Here it was frowned upon. Yeah. Is that built into why you're doing this? Uh, partly, yes. When I started, uh, when I told my dad I wanted to go into psychology, he had the same reaction of most of our parents. What is this uh, career? You yeah. will not make any money. <laughs> uh, what is this uh, bullshit you're talking about? And I was, I had started my career going into medicine, actually. Mm. And I found myself not doing so great in some of the courses. And I'm, and I noticed that I actually enjoy more being with people and, and talking rather than doing actual medicine. And this is how I initially started to shift. Uh, and then when I started, you know, just uh, some uh, small experience in the hospital, working with people, I started out as a researcher first, uh, doing research in mental health uh, at uh, AUBMC. Mm. And this is where we used to be in uh, contact with a lot of people who were coming in to get treated for different kinds of mental illnesses. And it was my first experience uh, seeing uh, patients face to face, being in touch with uh, people's agonies, people's suffering. And what we noticed back then, which was around 10 years ago, me and uh, my colleagues who actually co-founded the organization, is that 10 years ago, Lebanon was much obviously different in how we talk about mental health. Yep. People were uh, making a leap of faith to come into a hospital and sit in a waiting room where there's, uh, you know, 10, 15 other people in, a, in the room waiting to be seen by a doctor and a therapist. It was a much more uh, bigger taboo than it is today. And uh, what we used to see that these individuals would come and do everything they need to do in order to get the help they needed. But many of them still talked about how there was no acceptance in their families, how they had to hide uh, the fact that they were coming into the clinic uh, to the people who were closest to them, how there was no understanding in their workplace, among their families, about what they're going through. And uh, we felt stuck at a place where, you know, we're, we're there to help people. And they are, they're coming, they're making that step, but uh, something is stuck there. Mm. And uh, we, were, we were a group of people who really didn't enjoy uh, being stuck in uh, situations. Uh, we were a group of psychologists, but also risk takers, entrepreneurs, uh, people who uh, loved challenges, who loved to solve problems, and uh, who really, really, really love Lebanon. <laughs> Uh, me and a group of people who started out Embrace. So we thought it wasn't just fair for us to be clinicians, to sit in a hospital setting and see people come in and still have all of those struggles, not to mention also the financial struggles yeah. of seeking care back then, which today have increased 10 to 15 times more than what it was before. Uh, and for me personally, also, it was not acceptable that somebody would need mental health care and would not be able to afford it. And these were some of the initial thoughts that actually brought us to start up an organization. I remember back then I was uh, 24 when we started Embrace, 
And I remember that I had not come across one single campaign since for the for those 24 years of me li living in Lebanon that talked about mental health. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think we launched one of the first national campaigns uh, back then on mental health in Lebanon. The way you're describing Embrace and also this this love for Lebanon, it, it sounds like it's not really one about politics, but it's about society and trying to find a way that can maybe remove some pressure on people that cannot speak freely at home mm -hmm. or even among their friends, that you're giving an ear to those that want to talk about or at least express themselves adequately. And I think it's such a gap that was so big and you successfully filled it. Yes. And the lifeline, I think, it's not necessarily the only thing Embrace does, but that's how I got to know about Embrace. Yeah. And I don't know if this is shared with the audience. Even in October 2019, I ran into volunteers, I think just walking among protesters in Martyrs Square. That's actually how I read the numbers 1564, right? I memorized that. Um, and I can imagine being able to see this as a societal problem and not letting that interfere with maybe the background story, which is you're not, you don't hate this country. You love it. You're trying to improve something about it that may not be working right. I want to get in there. I see this as one of individual responsibility gone wrong. In other words, individuals that cannot claim independence on their own terms. They cannot fix their immediate surroundings in a way that's meaningful to them. And you can extend that into many different areas, whether it's politics or political, sometimes that impacts friends of ours who are now MPs. They cannot do much on an individual level. There's a communal level that handles things that may not be always healthy for society that could have psychological uh, implications. But I always saw that the individual action is so curtailed here that you need a group like Embrace to offer that breathing space. Now, is, is that the way you see this sort of dilemma? They have people at home that are afraid to share their feelings, but they're calling you sometimes thousands at once in one month. That's startling. Mm -hmm. is, is there anything there between individual and Almost like um, you cannot change even your immediate surroundings, so you have to go to a group like Embrace. I think, uh, you know, as psychologists, they always tell you, you, you can't treat family members. Everybody knows that. <laughs> because uh, it is very difficult to change uh, the culture, the environment, the family that we grew up in. So uh, often many of us who go into the uh, help-seeking uh, careers, uh, whether doctors or humanitarians, uh, psychologists, uh, it sometimes often comes from a place where we felt uh, stuck or helpless. Mm. And um, everybody, when, when I'm asked about the story of starting Embrace, I tell the story that I just said. But also when I reflect upon it, uh, with myself, <laughs> there are many other, and as I, every every day actually, uh, at Embrace, I learn another reason why probably uh, I got into this and I'm stuck in, <laughs> stuck in it and doing it for the past 10 years. 
every day I learn that, okay, maybe uh, something that happened with me in my life and my childhood growing up uh, probably prompted me and drove me into this mission that actually I was completely unaware of. But today I learned it about myself and it makes sense that uh, I'm here where I am. So upon reflection, you're able to see that your own life of course. contributed. Is there anything in what I said earlier about that, meaning that you couldn't shape things at a younger age in a way that was healthier for you? Of course. And uh, I, I actually didn't know this until, you know, in the mm. last few years that I've also done my own personal work and personal reflection and been able to, through embrace, understand that, you know, I've been through things that I was not in touch with myself. And another thing that I also learned was that the lifeline and the yeah. people, uh, it, it wasn't actually until the lifeline had picked up for a year or two that we did not only see the impact on the people who call us, Roni, but on the people who are running the hotline. Right. And yeah. uh, I noticed myself maybe uh, two years ago, whenever I'm in a discussion or conference and I talk about the people who are volunteering, I start tearing up and uh, I get very emotional. And I think because what we also are changing is the, peop the people who are coming and taking these calls and, you know, talking to people over the line. These are individuals who every day, every phone call they pick up, they are not just impacting the person they are helping on the other side of the line, but they are changing themselves. They are growing. They are uh, young people in the uh, prime of their life. Our average volunteering age is around 25. And these people probably are learning about themselves as well in no other space that has allowed them to do so in their entire uh, youth life. And that's, I think, one of the m magical things that we have going at Embrace as well. In terms of barriers, let's say, you have an active volunteer base and they're hearing very difficult conversations day in, day out. And you have a structural burden on you too, which is this is Lebanon. Do you find, are, are you able to measure maybe success in what these conversations offer? Meaning is empathy in itself something that you can quantify? Yes. How do you do that? It's uh, a simple word that you hear at the end of the call. It's uh, Yesterday we got a message uh, on our social media from a father uh, who, whose daughter we helped. And his message was, uh, you did not save one person, you saved an entire family through one intervention that took place uh, with his 18-year-old daughter who was suicidal and about to lose her life. So this is how we measure our impact. And uh, sometimes it's uh, one message like this that keeps us able to sustain ourselves through all of these adversities that we're going through. But we hear this day in and day out, every phone call almost, uh, every interaction we have. I don't know if I'm overstepping here, but do you find that there's a certain segment of society that is reaching out to you more? And maybe that could be something that's surprising at times. Uh, the youth are the biggest segment that reach out to us. The youth. The youth. The, the, the 
people between the ages 18 and 35, so a little bit like uh, some of us here in this room, this age group, uh, these people call the most on the lifeline and these people come the most to our, uh, our free mental health clinic uh, in Hamara. And um, it's typical, it's not something surprising. We see these numbers across the world in terms of uh, the data and the research coming out mm. on the burden on, of mental health on this age group in particular. Uh, but for me, uh, it's really worrying for us here in Lebanon because I know that this is the time of that we're productive, that we yeah. are giving back, uh, that uh, we discover ourselves the most. And if we are struggling, then that impairs a lot of uh, that process of self-discovery and being able to give back to the community in a very critical time in our lives. Even when it's a shared story across the globe, it is also startling that that is the demographic. Mm. And it's the way you said it. They should not, it's their prime. Yeah. And these many different calls, are you able to attribute to things that are more global or is it really more Lebanese? That the things that they're trying to overcome are the things we know, meaning the societal pressures, maybe sometimes the structural burdens that people don't have control over here always. Are you able to sort of link it to a, a bigger audience or is it really a Lebanese? And the reason I'm saying it this way is because, I, I mean, the Port Blast, that's not something that other countries mm -hmm. can easily relate to. I can imagine a lot of calls are particular to that kind of trauma. Yeah. So I guess, do you see something that's more maybe tainted as Lebanese? I wouldn't say uh, Lebanese in particular, but I think also the events that have happened recently around us, um, the disasters of Turkey and Syria, mm. tell us a little bit about uh, the region we mm. are living in, rather than just Lebanon as a whole and how it impacts each other. Mm. So these, these recent disasters have also reminded us that we share similar uh, structural uh, problems, uh, yep. similar uh, uh, problems with the, with the political systems that govern us, that make it also very difficult for people to live uh, in freedom, for people to live uh, a satisfactory life, to live in, in safety, in security. Um, the struggles we hear on the lifeline are not typically Lebanese, but they are definitely complicated more by a layer that is Lebanese or regional which is a sense that I cannot feel safe and secure uh, where I'm living. It, whether it's in my house because yeah. of the family tension and dynamics and uh, problems that we hear from youth struggling at home or from the larger society of marginalization, uh, of people not feeling free within you know, the streets they are roaming every day, uh, people wanting to leave. Uh, I would say it's a combination of Lebanese, but also more of a problem we are suffering from in the region as a whole. I like the word security. So let's say most of us feel insecure yeah. among relatives, friends, even sometimes just by being here. That level of insecurity and then your role or Embrace's role is trying to listen in a confidential way that does not expose people's problems. Where's the limit for Embrace? Is there an a line that you simply cannot cross and you have to inform somebody that this is happening 
And I'm thinking more on the maybe extreme measure that you want to be preemptive while remaining confidential. Yeah. And how, how, do you, how do you sort of draw that line? Um, uh, it's a technical question. Um, not sure. Uh, maybe everybody wants to know the details of it. But the mode in which we operate is one that really uh, works on empowering the individual's autonomy in terms of the decision making they take towards their lives. Uh, so the model that we, we function on the lifeline is very similar to models across the lifeline. Uh, some of them take on a more interventionist approach. So if, if I call today and I tell you I'm uh, thinking of killing myself and I have uh, the means and the method and I'm going to do this right now, some hotlines around the world, uh, like in the US, for example, they would have uh, the 911 just barge into your house right. five minutes later. Others uh, know they go all the way to listen, to try mm. to de-escalate as much as they can and to... Uh, listen enough for any kind of uh, hope that they can help build back that you deliver on the call. So we really do that uh, search, searching for the hope process over the call. Uh, by by keeping we, them on the phone as yeah, long yeah. By, by keeping them on the phone as yeah. long as possible. But at the end of the day, we also are Lebanese, so we we have the struggle all the time on the hotline. Do we do the extra mother Lebanese mother intervention oh. where we go the extra mile and no, you know, this person is in a high risk. I'm gonna, uh, sometimes we have the contact number, an emergency contact number, so we tell them, you know, we're gonna call your emergency contact number or we're gonna inform another party that you are in risk, but because we really need to protect your life right yeah. now. Yeah. And uh, it's, there's never one answer. It's really, it's very different from one situation to another. You know, I, thank you for letting me go as far as I can in this subject, because it's, it's, I think on a superficial level, I think it's just, it's not suicide prevention. You're trying to heal emotional wounds that all of us have, but at a very severe level. And like you said, I can, I can only imagine how the volunteers have to work with this and also you're right it is lebanon sometimes you recognize the person's voice i'm sure that happens yeah i mean yes. it's sometimes we know who the other person is and that yeah it's it's distressing and because ronnie when the the thing that i we always talk about uh, is that when somebody reaches out on the lifeline they want you to support, they want that, you know, it's, it's a lifeline, you know, they're throwing something to you and they, they want you to catch it and bring them back. So it's always a, a, a struggle for us in terms of the suffering that we hear. How much do I want to pull that person back? Okay. And I, I was on a show the other day and the, the host asked me if I uh, personally, uh, I believe in euthanasia and suicide-assisted uh, uh, death. So Only to my ex-boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Joking. I'm kidding. And I'm like, you know, I, we, we work from a premise that uh, we strongly respect the autonomy of a person to make their own decisions. But we also know, and this is the dilemma, that in a moment of extreme darkness, it becomes very difficult for a person to be able to think right. And sometimes they need that person just to 
listen to them and to tell them, I'm here and I'm gonna protect you to the best of my ability, so that something in them decides that they are worthy of staying where yeah. they are yeah. and not leaving. Before we get into the campaign, men's health campaign, that's something I really wanna dive into. The, the demographic, 18 to 35, that's the largest number. Do you think the reason the numbers are not maybe as large in the older ages is that there's still that built-in shame, even even when it's in technically an anonymous phone call? Do you sense that they cannot? I think there, I think there are multiple reasons. Uh, I think we have not reached this population yet, and this is mm. uh, one of the things that keeps me and the team uh, awake at night. Uh, yesterday I was uh, watching a basketball game, and there was a, an older man who was sitting next to me. And he started a conversation uh, with me uh, about uh, his son who also plays basketball, but he lives in another country. And then he started to talk to me about how he lives alone. Uh, he sleeps at 7 p.m. So he asked me, what, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a psychologist. And he's like, is it normal for me to be sleeping at 7 p.m. because I have nothing to do and nobody to talk to? And, you know, and I'm like, these people are... Are really struggling and yeah. they, it's not every day that they have the chance to talk to someone i think some of them need our intervention more but we are not being able to reach some of the elder population who so it's more reach rather than still this sort of hesitation or even shame sometimes the, the hesitation and shame for sure is mm. a, it's there yeah. we know it from yeah. our parents yeah. Uh, generation from our grandparents, but I think also with everything that we are going through in Lebanon, even the older generation are now more ready to talk about what they're going through. I'll tie this into men's health. You know, I I got to watch this video. I think it's a it's the campaign video itself. It's with the EU yeah. uh, social media page, Instagram, and I saw that the basketball players are in their 20s mostly some i think maybe the oldest one in the group and he's young and it felt like yes the message is for young men to listen i'm twice their age but i was listening too and i was thinking also of what they're saying it's absolutely true yeah there's something that you're addressing now which is not addressed enough mm -hmm. maybe it's addressed the wrong way which is keep it inside stay strong and brush it don't think about it too much and i found myself thinking about quite a few things so let's go into men's health and men's health awareness why is this campaign happening now and did you sense that this is a void or maybe something that you heard in multiple phone calls where this is something we're not talking about off the top of my head i hear of the things that are talked about endlessly which is vulnerable younger women and social media i hear about that even on netflix sometimes documentaries are made about adolescence yeah. and exposure to social media and suicide too yeah. but that's maybe now become a global thing everyone talks about it men's health not so much yeah. and i sense i sense choosing basketball players at in their prime there's something about that too which is you know it's not just about thinking. You have to be proactive with how you handle your own life, yeah. physically and mentally. So what can you say about that campaign? I think 
that the reason why this campaign was successful, Roni, and you watched it and it resonated with you, is because um, everything we do is inspired by what we are living. And if we really take what we uh, are living in every day and shed the light on it and be courageous enough to talk about it and to reflect on it, uh, then I think it, it becomes successful because it reaches every single one of us. Mm. When we, the, the idea of the campaign has been there for quite some time. It's not something that we uh, just out of the blue thought of. Mm. But if we walk around today, and especially in, the, in our recent past, recently in the last few years, we hear that men are talking constantly about politics and the socioeconomic situation and the value of the dollar and their jobs. And there's, you, you hear the pain, mm. you hear the suffering, but you don't hear it in the direct words. And, and it's surprising that these men are, they're, they're talking, but they're, there's the emotional aspect is not there. And you wonder, you know, what's, what's going on? And uh, we hear and we see different kinds of reactions. And I know that my dad has been suffering for the past few years, but I can't get him to talk. I know that my uh, partner or my colleague or my friend, but as women, we're, we're more comfortable sharing, we're more comfortable talking, but these men, I mean, what are they doing with all those emotions? Where, where, where are they putting them out? So I think it was really important to send them the message that, you know, it's okay to go to the next level. It's, you can start to talk about it. And because we're doing this also on Women's Day, uh, the impact that it has on women also when men don't uh, share what they're going through is also something that really impacts our relationships, our quality of life, uh, how we bond with each other, how we interact. Uh, because sometimes when men bottle up their emotions, it's like we are living parallel lives, especially with our partners, with our family members. Uh, there's a part of you that I'm not accessing. Mm. And this prevents a real uh, human connection and prevents us from living our life to the fullest when I can't really know what you're going through. I can imagine every sector of society today pushes men to be more reserved yeah. and quieter. And maybe there's an element of shame that makes them withdraw. Mm. When you're trying to address that, and you said there's direct words, what are those direct words you're talking about? I'm, I'm really interested in how can you pinpoint where that problem is? Because for me, at least the, the crowd that I know, uh, they would never be able to open up any of those doors. And if it's brought up, they would shut them in front of you. Sure. So how, how do you, you said direct words that you are... Know, I, I, I heard a lot recently men ex expressing things like, I'm going to do this on my own or I'm working to do mm. it to fix it on my own. I don't need your help or your support or yeah. this is a problem that I need to deal with by myself. Mm -hmm. And when you hear all of that, you you question what, 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 the, what is this person going so through? So it's, it's 
responsibility at a at a at the wrong level at a, at a level that is quite burdensome mm. that you wonder how how is this person really coping with that kind of isolation right and uh, and isolation and a, almost a denial that this person that me as a man i need some kind of support in order to uh, get on and to live my life there's a complete, you know, shut, shutting down on that aspect. And, um, I, of course, this is not to generalize. A lot of men do seek uh, help, and a lot of men do talk to uh, the women and friends and partners in their lives about what they're going through. But the majority do not. And especially, uh, it was important to talk about this during this time, because we talk about the trauma of the blast, the trauma of... Uh, everything that has happened in the past few years, but there's another trauma that we don't talk about very explicitly, which is the financial trauma. And uh, this is a big issue that uh, got quite normalized because we talk about it in every single uh, sitting, the value of the dollar, the savings, what are we going to do, but nobody is talking about the emotional aspect of having lost so many things. And we know that financial trauma hits men Uh, differently than it hits women and the men are coping with it and talking about it as if it's a you know a social uh, topic rather than an emotional topic as well and I think it's uh, it's risky that that hasn't been addressed in the past few years because a big part of men's worth and self-esteem and uh, ability to cope comes from their financial security and being able to secure for families because this is what also society has taught them. And um, I think, I, again, again, uh, I'm using some personal examples because everything is personal at the end of the day, but I, when I hear my dad at home every night talking with the, with the group of the, his friends and protesters who are Uh, going down on the streets and, you know, working to try to think that they can regain their money back. And, and you know, they're in their 70s and they're still hoping that, you know, they're, they're, they can get their money back, their life savings. And he's talking about it and talking about it and, you know, planning. And, but but he has, he's not, not accessing the fact that, you know, what he lost. Because he can't go there. He can't access those emotions and probably hundreds of men uh, in Lebanon are not able to talk about that. I'm trying to see it from your side as a group that is countering that, while that is the essence of why this type of person will withdraw. Mm. So they have absolutely, they've lost control. And you, not not trying to discredit anything, it's more that, how do how would you send that message to them that, Talking is still better than keeping it all in when it's exactly what you described. No money, they can't provide. There is a sense of guilt and shame that could really hurt anyone, and it does hurt men, you're right. And I think the older generation hurts them more, especially when they've lost so much. What is the messaging that you can offer? And The reason I'm curious is because the basketball players in the video, it sort of sends that maybe slightly more hopeful message, which is the youth can still do something. Yeah. But I'm thinking now of 
everyone else that really can't do much. We did want to send a, keep a positive message and hence the, the youth and mm. the basketball players. But I think uh, for everybody who is with us in this room tonight, I think uh, it, my message is to push each other to really ask that question to the men and women in our lives and ask them, how, how are you feeling about And I know, for example, that it would be difficult to ask many men around us, how is this making you feel? Do you want to talk about how this is making you feel and try to get them to access what, what's going on behind sometimes the anger, behind the isolation, behind the other uh, sometimes unhealthy coping behaviors they go to. And... Uh, I think this question, how, how, how is this really making you feel, is difficult for many of us to ask. Even some of the most, that are most in touch with their mental health, it's difficult to have that conversation. You know, it's funny you're saying this, and maybe we can make it a bit personal. I hate that question. <laughs> When I see that on WhatsApp, I archive the chat. <laughs> how are you? Delete. Why? Uh, but it's for the reasons you're describing. Mm. I think, I mean, everything you're saying is, is, is accurate, mm. but trying to get someone who's really going through loss, loss of any independent agency to want to open up. I can imagine that being a huge, huge challenge. Yeah. It is. It is. We need to find the right moments. We need to uh, be open with ourselves as well. We need to be comfortable having that conversation. We need to choose sometimes the time in which we have that conversation because... Yeah. You, you, you might see it once and decide not to answer, but maybe if that person, uh, you feel that they're really interested to know how you're doing today, you're going to take some time. And Is it meant to encourage the family to listen to men? Is that the sort of... Big part of it, yes. Family members definitely are, are very important. And, and it's even more difficult within our family. Sometimes with our friends, with our colleagues, we, we have these conversations. But with family members, it's definitely more difficult. Let me go now, sprinkle a bit of politics, because you mentioned that I have permission to do so. <laughs> I didn't want to necessarily, but then when you said it's okay, I felt it's fine. The anxiety that we feel in this country and everything that happened post-October 17, meaning these aspirations that you and I understood well on the street, people voting and trying to bring about change in parliament, everything that we were trying to do that was for the better, more or less hit a wall, more or less. And I'm sidestepping the poor blast for a moment. There's the sense of individual uh, needs in this country, at least until today, are outweighed by communal anxiety. And I know this is not maybe the uh, politically correct thing to talk about, at any point in Lebanon, but I think it's real. I think communal anxiety does play a role on individual well-being. Of course. Right. Can we talk about that as much as you'd like on how you've seen that interaction and whether or not sectarian anxiety does sort of feed into everything that we talk about? Uh, communal anxiety is different than sectarian anxiety. You're right. Actually, you're absolutely yeah, right. Two, yeah. Two different things. Because the communal anxiety is something, you know, that we can all be feeling here in the room. Right. Uh, 
Uh, if we go into our workplace in the morning, there's communal anxiety. If we drive in our cars in the morning, there's you can sense a communal anxiety in the traffic. And uh, actually, it's not until you, you know, if you leave Lebanon for a few days or you go on vacation that you notice how much communal anxiety we have and how much it's impacting uh, our everyday life and how much if you're not living here, you would not be experiencing the same thing. You would not, you would wake up differently in the morning. And for me, this is definitely very uh, worrisome and dangerous in the situation we have reached now. Sectarian anxiety is something else. I believe it's something that is uh, fueled by uh, sectarian leaders and, and political parties. And uh, it's, uh, it's something that you can play the, with the dosage with whenever you want. And un unfortunately, some people do have control over those buttons very strongly. Uh, but I, I think once the people in power who, re who really play with those buttons uh, are not there, then the sectarian anxiety would really significantly be, be less. Mm. Uh, and, and I think we see this in different periods and we notice how it plays on, on different dynamics. We noticed how it played on the dynamics when people were protesting, yeah. when people stopped protesting because they were more scared of what was going on and because of those threats in terms of... Uh, the sectarian threats that we used to, we were hearing at the time. How does that trickle into the mental health of Lebanon? Let's say you're looking at Lebanon now as a patient that's calling embrace. <laughs> <laughs> Is it something like power sharing gone wrong? Or I'm, what I'm trying to ask is, I, I feel, and it's not necessarily me or you or maybe anyone here, but if you take the whole country at large, there are segments of Lebanese society that express anxiety in a way that feels psychological, mm -hmm. doesn't always match other things. Yeah. Is there, as a psychologist, would you look at it as there's an imbalance? The way Lebanon was born, it doesn't match what it should look like? Or is it just something that an outdated DSM manual <laughs> We're on version six now, maybe five or six. Five, five. not yet six. Uh, maybe We're looking at nineteenth century <laughs> Freudian answers mm -hmm. for things today. Is there anything you could offer there? Because I, I I feel comfortable asking you because you've embedded yourself to a degree in the political scene, and we've had these conversations day in day out about secularism, sectarianism, communal anxiety, and the like. Uh, I will repeat, I think, what we talked about and what we hear in the, in the last three years, that uh, the moment that October 17 happened, and I talk about it with no more nostalgia anymore, just pure uh, scientifically, uh, I think that moment uh, taught us that there is a new DNA and told us, and, and I speak because also I'm somebody who is um, in my prime as well, I'm young, so I think... I speak the same language as much of the young people to say that uh, even we're, we're somewhere else and uh, we can move Lebanon in a direction that we want, but also there are big, there are things that are bigger than us that are still exist in terms of the old way in which things have been, the old DSM version, if you want. <laughs> yes, yeah. Okay. And it's a battle that we need to fight every day. And October 17 showed us that uh, 
we have some tools to play around in this playground, uh, but it requires a lot of consistency, it requires time, and it requires us uh, to have realistic expectations as well, because one of the major things that, that has happened after that is uh, people had a certain expectation of what this revolution can achieve, and uh, the disappointment that happened also played in on a psychological level to bring us back and to feel know that we have to go back and we are stuck in the old patterns and the old um, segmentation that Lebanon was born into. But I do feel we have a power and an energy to change that with time. And in the journey of expression, I think our generation, I'm, I'm a bit older than you, but the post-war generation, I think that word has been evolving. And I think most of us are comfortable talking about most things today. Not everything, but political expression was alive on the streets and it's still alive to a degree. There's a sense of freedom of you can talk about almost everything publicly in Lebanon. There are some consequences, but more or less those lines are drawn. In terms of individual expression and mental health and mental health awareness, have you seen a positive trend? In the last 10 years that people are now more comfortable talking about things that they wouldn't talk about before sometimes these words may be abused maybe not everything is traumatic maybe depression is not always what you think it is but just the ability to talk and to seek therapy most of my friends are open now talking that they have a therapist yeah. and thankfully it's not me <laughs> but they have someone to talk to I have never sought therapy myself, but I know that most of my friends do, and they do it proactively, mm -hmm. and that's a slightly older generation. Have you seen that positive shift? Yes, for sure. And I think we've... Uh, um, Embrace has been part of this movement for the past 10 years, and many people ask me, you know, what contributed, and I think many things. Uh, unfortunately, some of the traumas that we've been through also normalized the conversation around mental health and mm. even the socioeconomic trauma also. And you know, we had COVID, we had the Beirut blast, but we also had the socioeconomic crisis that played a very important role in people normalizing that they're going through something as a result of, you know, all of these losses that we've experienced. So there, the negative events, unfortunately, have, you know, brought that conversation Mm. But also uh, social media, globalization, uh, following uh, worldwide trends in terms of being able to talk about uh, taboo topics that we, you know, the openness of the world to each other has also contributed to this open conversation on uh, very sensitive topics we did not talk about before. It seems like it was put in place right at the right time mm. for everything in the country to go wrong. Yeah. I've said a lot. I've said maybe more than I needed to. Is there anything you'd like to add to this? I mean, maybe some some maybe personal anecdote or anything that puts embrace in a way that is accessible. Because I know it still as one of the shining stars in the NGO sector. But to be honest, I don't know it well enough, and I don't know. I don't know how you're able to get someone out of a situation when we know how bad things are. I, I, is there anything you can add to your, your, your own work in Embrace? Um, I will talk about just working in Lebanon in general today uh, mm. has become a mental health challenge on its <laughs> own. Yeah. 
And uh, I think we notice this every day because we, we're no longer working. We're, uh, we go to work today to put out fires. Uh, I think and this is in most organizations and most companies uh, in Lebanon. And this has also, uh, I think, uh, tainted even the idea of work, which usually was a place where you go to get motivation, to feel challenged, to, to produce, to excel. And this is definitely not different for the NGO world, which also experiences this internal, the internal struggles of, you know, going through Lebanon, but also the external challenges of responding to beneficiaries. Because if you're a private company at the end of the day, you have your employees that you need to cater right. to. Yeah. But if you're an NGO, it's your internal people and the, the beneficiaries who are counting on your service and they're counting on it to be there, to be present. Uh, and because there is no governmental structure anymore, uh, what we faced in the last year is also an increase in the expectations and the demand to provide as if we are a government. Right. And uh, this puts you in a situation where you, you, on, you as a provider, you become helpless at times and you start doubting whether uh, am I doing enough? Am I doing the right thing? Uh, should I keep on doing this or not? Because I'm receiving all the responsibility for things that I'm potentially not responsible for. But so that's, that's interesting. So it's almost like you're the state minus the state. So at the end of the day, this is less a societal, more a political burden. Of course. And uh, today, social media and uh, uh, also the uh, openness to express whatever you want and uh, your opinion uh, publicly for everybody to see has not made it easier as well because you can express any kind of opinion today without also being... Uh, held accountable or liable if this opinion is accurate mm. or not. Mm. And in the absence of the state, any service provider today uh, needs to fill in this gap. And also this is not uh, something yeah. that is realistic or uh, achievable. Uh, so I would, I would say that it has been difficult working uh, in mental health and in the nonprofit uh, sector in, uh, in Lebanon. Uh, but when I'm asked if I would be doing anything else today, I would say no, because at the end of the day, we know that we need to go through this period in order to get Lebanon back on its feet. And if we don't have the strength to tolerate it, then a lot of people also will give up and uh, lose hope and leave. And uh, with this, I think a lot of people who are putting these plans in place would uh, have uh, gotten what they want. There's many NGOs trying to help vulnerable communities. You're helping a very vulnerable segment of society that transcends finance, community, geography. Everything I've heard about Embrace has been positive. And I'm really glad to hear what you're saying is that this is maybe the hardest thing to do right now fill in for the state an anarchic climate where everyone has many things to worry about suicide is real i think it was just two or three days ago there was a suicide in a bank mm -hmm. if i'm not mistaken three days ago or so i mean that's yeah it's happening regularly and you're here providing that helping hand and listening ear i think we all owe you a round of applause for doing the good work you're doing thank you Thank you.
So what I wanted to do is save the more sensitive stuff to the Q&A. We can take a small break now, maybe 10, 15 minute break, and then we'll keep going in the Q&A. Okay, thank you. in trouble <laughs> it's when the music turns off right everyone gets scared right yeah so joe has the microphone we can begin with q a and then maybe me and i will carry on a bit with more sensitive stuff but does anyone have a question from now for mia about embrace show of hands is that in the background no he's just waving <laughs> um. Oh, he has a question. I do have a question. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Uh, my name is Fuad. Um, amazing so far. Thank you very much for the work you're doing. Thank you. My question is, when you are taking care of everybody, your employees, people who th seek help, uh, callers, who takes care of you? <laughs> and, and, and I'm talking about, is it? You seek it via family, institutions, business people supporting financially, anybody still sane in this government? Who gives you personally the support and who gives your organization the support to carry on? That's a sensitive question. <laughs> um, the organization... Uh, I think we give each other a lot of support. Uh, and I think uh, that's one of the reasons that we are still uh, standing. And, um, and I think that also... Uh... <laughs> you know, I'm going to help you here. Uh, I've known Mia for, what, six years on and off? Five or six years? Um, you're such a strong, independent woman, and I think you're the one helping a lot of people usually, but I think from my limited knowledge, you found a way to s surround yourself with very strong yet sympathetic men and friends, and some of these are even friends that have exposed themselves to politics. I've seen you with a very important circle that keeps you sane. For sure, for sure. I think I have a very uh, strong uh, friend support network and some of them are uh, right here in front of me and they, they support me. Uh, but the reason why I also uh, hesitated is because uh, sometimes it's important to be vulnerable with, uh, with also the people uh, you are supporting and telling them that you also sometimes need support. 
And um, I did that with a few friends and colleagues a few months ago when I reached the point that I was also not doing so well. And uh, I uh, saw a therapist for the first time uh, in 35 years, which I should have done a long time ago. But uh, Roni is right. Sometimes uh, a lot of things give us the power to move forward and we forget to take care of ourselves. So I actually, I'm a bit new to that uh, arena and I just started to do it uh, recently. <laughs> so yeah, I'm working on it. <laughs> Are there other questions? Yes. No. Um, is it the mouse with the mic? Yeah, please. Okay. So if you found out that a family member um, is seeking therapy, is now meeting a therapist, other than supporting them and encouraging them to go and see the therapist, how can you help them? It's a very difficult question, honestly, and I had to also personally go through it uh, not a very long time ago. Uh, I'm a, I, I'm in a, come from a family of five girls and a boy, and uh, so despite being quite close, I'm, they also they sometimes joke that uh, I can't believe you're a psychologist <laughs> because I'm a completely different person as a sibling. Um, but I also, as I became also more comfortable with my own vulnerabilities, it has helped me to be also closer to family members sometimes when they're going through uh, their own issues. And I try to talk to them about it, to comfort them. I sometimes play the psychologist role, but most of the time I also, you know, give them, inform them about the resources that they need to seek and make sure that they are following up when they need to, but I'm also uh, a listening ear for them also when they need to talk. What if we do not have, what if we do not have the knowledge? Um, what uh, then? I think uh, if we don't have the knowledge, but you want to learn, I think it's easy to learn some of the right things to say when somebody is struggling, just to get them to open the conversation. But if you're interested, and this is what we say to our volunteers on the lifeline, especially when they first become to train to become operators on the hotline, many of them don't know what to say and don't have that experience, but there's a genuine a need within them to be able to listen to that person. So sometimes we tell them if that feeling is within you, then nothing you are going to say is going to be uh, wrong or off. We can give some tips on what are the best questions or how to open the conversation. But if you're somebody who genuinely wants to listen to someone else, you're going to be able to do it naturally just by, you know, sometimes being there, and sometimes being silent, and sometimes it's not about what to ask or what to say. And the best kind of listening often is not talking, but uh, you can listen with different things. You can listen with your body. You can listen with uh, your eyes. Uh, there are many things that people do when actually you're comfortable with the other person, but they're not saying much. I know William in the middle wanted to ask a question. Is that? Do I have to? <laughs> it's I yours. Think, I think yes. Um, no, thank you so much for that. That was, that was fantastic. I guess the question is, you know, I've been here 10 years and I, and I hear a lot of Lebanese problems. 
it's a problem of Lebanon, it's a problem of Lebanon, it's a problem of Lebanon. And then you go back to the UK and you realize actually it's not a problem of Lebanon, it's, it's a global problem. And so for instance, you know, my experience of being at school in the UK, we didn't have a school counselor and we didn't talk about mental health. Yeah. And then I came and worked at school here and we did have a school counselor and it was kind of really fascinating for me because I think that, you know, Lebanese people, they like to talk and they like to share. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so how useful is it sometimes to frame these as Lebanese problems and actually does it sometimes kind of add to this kind of pessimistic outlook that we have about this country when actually we should be saying, let's look at all the positives that still do remain in, in this country. And one of the things I think is that people do talk about their mental health. People do talk about the explosion. They do talk about yeah. the financial crisis. They talk about all of these things. And if we keep talking about in Lebanon, people have these you know, patriarch, everywhere's got a patriarchal society. Everywhere has issues with, with talking about mental health. Should we not talk about these as more global issues rather than kind of constantly kind of seeing it through this, this lens of isn't Lebanon terrible? For sure. And this is this uh, goes back to uh, your question when you uh, asked me about this. And I do, I agree with you 100%. I think uh, we should not label everything as a Lebanese problem. And the problems mm. that we hear on the lifeline are universal. And this is what we were just talking about a while ago. Uh, mental health problems, uh, uh, they're not unique to Lebanon. The stories that we hear on the lifeline uh, are the same stories that we hear that people hear on the Samaritans uh, hotline in the UK. Uh, mental health problems in other countries are sometimes triple uh, what we have in Lebanon. Uh, mental health among men in the UK is a big issue as well, big taboo. And uh, I think you, the UK has some of the highest rates of suicide among men. So uh, our issues are definitely not unique. But again, what I mentioned is that some of the context that we are, we are going through is adding another layer of complexity. But again, I do think that what you're saying is very important because we have become, uh, we're, we're normalizing this uh, sentence of this is the Lebanese situation. And yes, I do think that this is, adds a layer of pessimism to how we experience things. It adds a layer of hopelessness and no, I can't do anything about this and this feeling of learned helplessness that because it's the Lebanese situation, then I just need to uh, either suck it up or normalize what we're going through and then begin to talk. And actually this contributes to a certain extent to more mental illness because what we also saw is everybody is depressed because of the Lebanese situation. Everybody's anxious because the Lebanese situation. So it prevents people from actually taking action or feeling that they can or they need to take action towards something. So um, it is a problem at, at many levels. Well, I think it's, I think it's funny actually. And sorry, this isn't a question, this is a statement. So I apologize for that. But when I used to teach and I'd say, why do we not have 24 hour electricity here? And the answer my students gave me was, this is Lebanon. That's not an answer. Like, of that's, that's, why do we not have, why do we have the slowest internet in, in the entire world? Oh, this is Lebanon. That's not an answer. And if you continually frame these as Lebanese problems, what do you do with them? You, how do you actually yeah. change them and say, well, how do we get 24 electricity? How do we get faster internet? How do we? Correct. So, so what do we do with that? And, and how does that kind of play into your role as, as a mental health advisor? Uh, now, I think this is, I think your question also overlaps with, with politics because 
And, and the reason why uh, Ronnie and I were meeting up often because in the last few years, uh, we noticed that mental health really intertwines with politics and with our societal life in a very strong way. So actually, when, when I noticed that we were blaming uh, all of our problems on, on the situation, I noticed that and this is where I personally became more involved in politics because I felt that we need to answer the question differently instead of saying this is the situation. How can we solve it in a different way? But we are used to saying, and this is because of the uh, what the learnings and, and the society and the people in power have put us in a situation of believing that this is it and we cannot change. And when I decided a few uh, years, two years ago to venture a little bit into politics just to dip in a little bit, you know. Not a little bit. <laughs> you dipped in. <laughs> Quite a bit. It was because <laughs> we, we, we noticed that we needed to ask those questions and we need to stop saying this is the Lebanese situation and how do I get 24-7 electricity? How do I do that? And uh, nobody was willing to, especially among our generation, to begin to ask those questions because we are used to say it's the, this is the situation. So me and others who... Uh, ventured into politics in the last few years, decided that, you know, we can play a role in changing this narrative. Uh, we were uh, strongly faced with different uh, uh, obstacles and challenges to tell us, no, you don't have the right to open this narrative or change it, but we're still trying to do that, I think. I hope it answers your question. Was there another question in the back earlier? I thought I saw a hand up. No? Do you want another one, please? A similar question. So statistically, when it comes to the number of depressed people and the number of suicides in Lebanon, how do they, how do they compare to Euro, European numbers? They are very similar, actually. Uh, but also our Lebanese data is a little bit outdated. So the last data tells us that one out of four people are going through a mental health problem. So if it's me, you, and Roni, and uh, my friend Rawad, uh, one of us, uh, right, one out of us uh, currently is seeking therapy or uh, receiving uh, a medication or a treatment for a psychological problem. I <laughs> and this is uh, data that is um, uh, a few years back. So today, many, many years back, actually, around 16 years old. So everybody asks today, what is the prevalence of mental health in Lebanon? And I would say maybe two out of four, okay, maybe three out of four. We don't know this data yet. Uh, but anecdotally, I would say it's uh, me and Rawad, so it's maybe 50%. <laughs> so um, that tells us that, you know, it's, it's on the rise uh, to say, but it's not very different than other countries. And the rate of suicide is much lower in Lebanon than other countries in, the, in Europe, for example. So considering everything that's happening in Lebanon, how are we similar to other countries where, for example, in Europe, they have the basic needs and they have humanitarian rights? Uh, this is the issue. People uh, really uh, associate suicide and mental illness with, you know, uh, the lack of uh, basic needs. Uh, now, suicide 
re, you, you happens most often and or most commonly in low to middle income countries. This is true. But some of the uh, most developed countries and most well-off countries have extremely high rates of suicide because it's not just about having the basics. It's not having a good education or uh, the right finances or economic situation. Mental illness is very complex. It's a number of psychological, uh, personal issues, social, environmental issues that you've lived, as well as genetic factors. All of them can play a role. So uh, it really depends on the combination of these three factors that really uh, uh, result in the developing of a mental illness. So we can't say that just because we are in a better off country, it means that our mental health will not be affected. On the contrary, some of uh, the highest rates are in European countries where uh, factors such as loneliness, isolation, lack of human connectedness, a very fast-paced life, uh, the hustle culture, very industri uh, industrialized countries also experience high rates of suicide and mental illness because they're also losing the bonds. The protective factor for us in Lebanon is actually we are still sort of a collectivist uh, society. And now, you know, in the last week, we heard about all of these suicides. And we're hearing uh, this would not happen in any other country where you hear and for a whole week, we have just been answering interviews about the death of a few people. This does not happen in any country. But because we are still very connected, we are a small population, when there is one death in the south, now the whole country knows about it. And the whole country has heard the voice note or the um, uh, suicide letter that this person has left. This is not common in other countries. This is good and bad. It's bad because what we are seeing, sometimes the effect of it is a suicide contagion effect, which we witnessed, I believe, last week. And there were numerous suicides happening in the same week. But also, it prompts us to be uh, a more collective, to ask more about each other, to be more concerned, to talk about it, to call up a friend that I, I, I felt I was worried about last week because I heard about this news. And now I remember that my friend is going through something, so I need to check up on them. So these are some of the factors that are a little bit unique to uh, our situation. Please, yes. So one last question, I promise. Um, migrant workers, 7% of the Lebanese population at this point, probably more 10 years ago. Do they utilize your service? Uh, yes, the hotline uh, to a certain extent. And when they do need the mental health services, uh, they do access it. And uh, uh, actually also Lebanon has one of the high rates of suicide among migrant workers. And it was, it's been reported around 17% of our suicides uh, in, in some of our years, past years, have been from, uh, from the migrant population. So uh, again, this is a structural issue, a political issue related to uh, the rights uh, of migrant workers and uh, the policies around that. So this is something we also, oh my God, it's raining. <laughs> I just noticed, yeah. Uh, we've been lobbying for and working on because uh, we were surprised to find out that almost uh, 15 to 17 percent of deaths are among migrant workers in Lebanon. Hello. Uh, hello. Yes, I have a question on uh, about suicide. Um, if you have a, a person you're living with, I mean a close relative of yours. And this person sometimes uh, can use uh, uh, the threat of suicide 
enabled to obtain whatever he wants or she, or she wants. It's, I mean, the question is uh, how far you can take this in seriously, um, the threat of suicide. And this person is very smart and uh, is a bit manipulator, un peu comme un pervers narcissique, mais c'est pas vraiment ça. I mean, how far you can take it into consideration that it can be serious and we usually prefer to take any threat about suicide um, seriously because we we understand that uh, whenever anybody goes to the extent to become to start talking about this issue or to um, quote unquote threaten about it it means there is this there there is a suffering that is going on despite if some people uh, perceive that there is a Uh, another gain, a secondary gain for these kind of threats. Uh, but we do prefer to consider it or to look at it as a call for help or a cry for help, that this person is needing something that he is not being able to uh, get from their surrounding. And uh, for them, the only way to be able to uh, achieve this need is to uh, talk about suicide or to think about killing themselves. Mm -hmm. um, I understand where the question is coming from, uh, but my answer is that we need to take any kind of threat seriously and try to get that person to receive the support that they need, uh, despite what their uh, what any what any kind of motive might be behind it. Our mm -hmm. we believe the motive is for them to try to access some kind of help they are not receiving. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Were there other questions? No? Let me ask you a question I was not thinking of earlier, but we mentioned the comparisons between here and abroad, and it's sort of almost a cliche, but I always hear of Scandinavian levels as being absurd, and then other countries not. And I'm assuming isolation plays a role in that story. Is that something that we have an advantage in, which is that we're rarely alone? Yeah, yeah. Even when we're not talking necessarily about our most inner pain, there are people around us Correct. that can comfort us in different ways. Yeah. For sure, this is one of uh, our protective factors. And mm. it's protective factors in mo most collectivist societies Uh, not just Lebanese or Arab, and you see that that there's a difference between cultures and countries that have a more of a collective um, uh, culture. Uh, mm. the, the rates of suicide are uh, much lower. One of the most difficult situations we see and patients we see in therapy are patients who come to us who have lost someone to suicide. And even as, as a therapist, this is one of the most difficult conversations I have to have with a Uh, with a client or with a patient. Because so it's the impact of suicide. It's on. the impact of suicide and death, but mm. suicide has a different layer than death mm. because there's a feeling among suicide survivors, which are family members who are left behind, and this is something that suicide survivors around the world share, mm -hmm. that there's an extreme sense of guilt associated with the death of uh, a loved one or a family member that is not seen or associated with any other kind of death. So guilt for not having done... Guilt for not having seen things, mm. for not having done enough, for not having noticed the signs. Uh, and 
you feel that in a way or another you contributed to the death of this person. Right. And yeah. this is a very difficult feeling yeah. to live with mm. because we, it's, it, you feel that you have played a role in, in somebody's death. Bainama is a, you lose someone to a car accident mm. or to a, an illness, uh, you, you can explain it, you can put it in a context, you can rationalize and think about death in ways that make sense. Uh, with mental illness being uh, and something that's unseen, and this is one of the reasons we don't talk about mental illness, because people can't see it like we hurt our leg or we need to do an operation. And death by suicide is very similar. Mm. So family, it's very difficult for family members to go there sometimes. And um, if you're ready to have that conversation, it doesn't mean that others are ready to do so. Right. And sometimes you have to accept the limitations that you have and understand that your need to have that conversation doesn't mean it's going to be helpful or healthy to others. Right. If you see it as healthy, they might not see it as healthy. And it takes a readiness from many of you to go there, to go down that line. Mm. Uh, doesn't mean that I, I, of course, I think for any kind of healing to take place, I believe that we need to talk about these issues openly. I always sense that it's because of that method that no one wants to talk about it. Less to do with the guilt. With the method of? That the suicide is the problem. Yeah. That's the feeling I'm getting. That that's why they don't really want to open the door. There's a shame, of which is absolutely unfair, yeah. that he killed himself. And no, I, I mean, even... Because we don't understand why a person might go to that level. Right. And, um, and, and, it's, and I think that lack of being able to understand what, what, what is also makes us guilty and us yeah. ashamed that maybe we we didn't do enough and we didn't know enough right so there's a complex uh, there are there are complex feelings attached to that both shame and guilt are very strong mm -hmm. and uh, both feelings are not very accepted in society so we don't want to access them easily right uh, and often people who reach a point where also they end their lives are experiencing those very similar kind of feelings, shame and guilt and feeling like a, they are a burden to others, feeling like they are unworthy of being, of existing and that their, their presence in this life is not important to those around them. A failure can trigger, you talked about the conversation around failure, failure can trigger the feeling that I'm not worthy enough to be here yeah. And that I don't belong anymore. So my life, my death is worthier than my life. I'd like to take the conversation to something that I've experienced by having a podcast and by having common friends. Uh, the last maybe four years of this topic regarding fairness, and a lot of us robbed of that fairness, and so many tragedies in this country, you get to meet the bereaved, you know the victims' families, they become personal friends. And I always feel like there's a certain strength in being able to be open about it and confronted. And often in Lebanon, that becomes a political path, most of the time. And a lot of these people I've had on the podcast several times. So you get to experience their personal with the political 
And it almost detaches the personal from it enough that you can talk about it as if it's a political story only, which is a very absurd way of handling that tragedy. But at the other side, I know many people that suffer in silence. Yeah. And the fairness impacts them too. In that kind of world where your mission, the way you described it earlier, your own journey, which has put one foot in politics at times, are you able to maybe address those that are suffering in silence in a way that is not so obvious? We become almost, I think, numb to how much trauma there is. That's the best That's segue. Great way of being becoming numb. Where's that coming from? From the... Cochle, yeah. <laughs> That's another story. <laughs> How do you make inroads to those that simply can't talk? It hurts too much. When we, we make inroads with those that are becoming public figures because they want to, but there's hundreds, there's thousands of those that simply don't. That's one of the reasons why we, we, have, we launched the hotline, actually, because we know that there are people who won't reach out, who won't talk in public, and who won't talk to some of the closest members, but perhaps they might reach out to a service that is anonymous and confidential, where uh, enough awareness and um, enough pain can really trigger them to reach out and call. But um, something that I learned also from... Uh, being in this field for the past few years is that there are a percentage of people, because uh, we, we always get asked, are you saving everyone? And I, I uh, say that the people who are most likely to die by suicide, we will not be able to save them because these people who, are, who eventually die will never pick up a phone to talk to someone. Mm. We are saving or helping the people who are somewhere uh, down this path, but are not at uh, uh, reaching a definite death by suicide. We're preventing it, but there are, there's an, an, uh, a suicide expert uh, who actually came and uh, helped us to launch uh, the hotline in Lebanon told me this, and he told me, be ready to, to accept that there are people who are going to die who will never pick up the line. And this is the part of me that accepts certain kind of autonomy and people's mm. right to, you know, sometimes suffer uh, in silence and not reach out because it's a personal decision that they want to also make. I wouldn't expect that. Yeah, a lot of people don't expect this from me. So it's an, an acceptance that there is a, that a certain we, line that, that you cannot cross. That yeah. We can't save everybody and we can't save those who don't, want to be saved. And this is a, one of the main rules for us in, in therapy as well. If you're a, a client who's coming in for therapy or a patient, I can play a certain role in helping your path to recovery, but it's not my responsibility to, to do that. It's, it, it's going to be your path, your journey, your decisions all the way. Are there other questions? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let, wait, let's try to end it slightly, slightly, I mean, of all, okay, I should say something. There, that's, that's the ending, yeah. I've done nearly 400 episodes, my own podcast, and now on other platforms.
this is the hardest subject for me to talk about, but it's strange because I express myself through the podcast and I found a way to maybe, maybe there's a disadvantage there. I've never sought therapy. I've never sought external counsel. Instead, I express myself. I think that at the end of the day, this is really about expression with an ear. Somebody else is listening. It is. But if I want to give you a, just a small piece of advice, Please. Uh, that when we choose to express ourselves in these kinds of settings also, mm-hmm. and when you talked about um, uh, the victims of the blast who have also lost uh, their loved ones and turned into a political journey, sometimes this is our own way of also coping mm-hmm. and distancing us ourselves from actually feeling uh, the deep emotions that we need to feel and putting things into a context that our brain can, you know, uh, rationalize and deal with and intellectualize a little bit some of the things we are going through. Yeah. Whereas when we go to therapy, what happens is more of a, a free association process. When you're going into, th- when you're doing your podcast, you have your questions ready. You know what it is? It's the camera <laughs> and the microphone. It you're makes me feel like, yes, exactly. Yeah, you're right. But when you go to therapy, you, you are not in control and you have to let go of all your guard. And that is really when things happen. And um, So then let me pick your brain here. <laughs> Hold on. Uh, I, I spent years doing this. You spent years working on Embrace, but... I heard it right. It's only recently yeah. you sought therapy. Yeah. Is that the same reason why you, you took you time? Yeah. That you were not, it's not compensating, but it's that you found a coping mechanism. For sure. And that is embrace. For sure. And we're always looking for other coping mechanisms and ways. Everything we do in life is a, to compensate for something, especially when we do things to a, a certain level of extremeness. Uh, sometimes even our successes, our accomplishments are a way of compensating for not being able to sit with difficult emotions and difficult feelings. And it's actually we, we do better and we achieve better when we reach the point where we can sit with our vulnerabilities and, uh, and those difficult moments. When we, when we politicize things sometimes also and Turn into a poli- turn things into a political battle. It helps, but it not not all the way. If it, it, and it doesn't help if we are not being able to uh, to sit with a difficult moment. Some people in politics have no, no ability to you know uh, sit with their emotions. <laughs> and um, I think everyone we know. <laughs> <laughs> It, it makes it more difficult to lead ourselves and to lead others. If we can't lead ourselves, we definitely cannot lead others. Your work has opened the door to a subject that was taboo in my childhood. It was a discomfort for you growing up. We know what it's like to be laughed at when you bring up therapy, what, less than 20 years ago? Mm. And I, I mean... You've, you've kicked the door open in a way that I think is meaningful in a global way, but also in a Lebanese way. You're active on your terms in politics, which I think is good. You have one foot in when you want one foot in, and then one foot out when you I don't want. I think we all have to have a foot in. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And I say this to every civil society group that has withered the storm. Without something like Embrace or all these groups functioning, the state of anarchy would be much worse. And civil society needs the respect that it deserves, which is it's filling in the state's role. 
and it's a public health thing and, and you're doing it and it's your mission that everyone that wants it can access it so for those reasons and other reasons always i'd like to talk to you mia thank you ronnie always thanks to the audience to as well thank you everyone for staying i'm going to stick around at the bar anyone that wants to keep chatting a bit and thanks to william thanks to neve as always where you're a shining star <laughs> Don't leave the country. He's leaving, by the way, end of the month. <laughs> you should stay. You should stay. This is a difficult conversation, but it's an important Thank one. Thank, Thank you, you Mia.